Canto 20 of The Purgatory is actually a very fascinating one because it actually takes quite a long time to really work out what's going on when you're interested on the inner story, the inside tale of what's happening to Dante the Pilgrim through his journey, which, as I'm pressing, is really the important one, because if we can understand something of what is so transformative for him, then we gain something that can be very transformative for us, potentially leading us along the same path through all the darkness, but towards the light as well. And so that desire to understand the comedy uh, really came to the fore for me as I've been reflecting upon Canto 20. It seems at first, and many of the commentators um, take this line as well, um, as if it's Dante lamenting the history of Italy, and there's a lot of history in it. But the commentators also point out that as history, it's a bit garbled. Um, research subsequently has shown that a lot of the things that Dante presents as facts in the canto aren't right. And that can be quite disturbing if you take the Divine Comedy to be an inspiring revealed text that offers something profoundly it's profoundly true about human life and what this life is all about, making us capable of heaven. But I think that when you understand it as its primary significance being Dante's liberation from the deep history that felt like it trapped him so much in life, him having to work through that, the canto starts to make sense because what's important isn't actually the facts per se, although they are significant, you can't just throw all the facts to the wind, but what really matters for our liberation is the emotional memory. That's what keeps us caught up in the past, whether it be our immediate past or the deep history of events that's led to the moment that we feel has so got us and which can so profoundly sort of cause our rage and hate, jealousy, pride, all these things which Dante and the other souls in purgatory are trying to free themselves from. And so taking responsibility for that. Do you remember this has been a theme over the last few cantos um, where people perhaps have blamed the influence of the stars much as we might blame parents or genes. Um, taking responsibility for where we find ourselves and so becoming agents in relation to our lives, not just robots who are fated. That's the key dynamic. And I think that when you read Canto 20 in that light, it makes profound sense. So I think Dante the Poet signals this inner reading right from the start because it begins a bit strangely. He says that they left Adrian, do you remember the Pope who had been lamenting the way that worldly concerns gripped him in life right to the moment that he became Pope when at the pinnacle of worldly power he saw it all before him and so realised that he had a deeper love for heavenly things within himself. They leave Adrian lamenting that. And Dante says that he left 
unsatisfied. There was something that felt he knew he had to move on. And yet he left Adrian partly wanting to hear more as if he might hear something from Adrian that would really help him. And this state of desperately wanting more deepens because as they move further around the terrace of the Avarice, Dante the poet describes the Pilgrim and Virgil having to kind of pick, way, pick their way through the mass of mourning, lamenting souls, all with their faces to the ground, their tears dampening the dust. You know, this is a very common, pervasive, deep trouble that earthly souls have. They become attached to worldly things for good, as we've been saying, not just for ill, um, but that entrapment leads them to lose sight of what this world is really about, which is a portal, a symbol, a sacrament, a channel to God's glory. So they pick their way through all these lamenting souls. Dante says he's never felt so kind of distressed for them. He's completely entering into this state. Um, and he, he curses avarice itself. Um, he says that um, it's like the she-wolf um, whose hunger gnaws, who will devour everything. Um, and he calls to the heavens and says, when will come someone who can make the beast flee, a kind of wolf slayer? And I think what this is about um, is partly him as a worldly figure himself, wondering when the world can change, when will come a leader or a figure, um, you know, maybe a Christ-like figure that can frighten the wolves of avarice that otherwise keep us so in check. But I guess it's also got an inner element as well, because, you know, the, the avarice inside us can be likened to a sort of double of us that is a bit like a personality that's wolf-like within us, that, that, that feels all this greed, feels all this hunger, feels all this yearning, and would try and find it in this world. But what I think we're invited to do is see that whilst that's very much a powerful dynamic within us, it's perhaps not our true self. Um, it's a kind of part of us that we can almost imaginatively put into the wolf inside us and so begin to find a bit of space to relate to this world in a different way and to see its goods as but echoes and shadows of the greater goods that we can become more and more capable of. Dante then hears a voice and it feels a bit like a voice in this wilderness that might actually have something for him. From the inner point of view, I think it's saying that Dante is actually now in a moment to be receptive to hearing a voice. You remember that there's hundreds of souls, thousands even, that they're stepping over around them, um, and they're just the ones that they can see. Um, presumably they're all talking, they're all saying things, they're all mourning, they're all lamenting. But as it were, Dante's inner ear homes in on this one voice, um, as if his spiritual yearning has a kind of wisdom to listen into it. And the voice is celebrating three examples of individuals who didn't cling to worldly possessions, um, but whose poverty 
enabled new things to be born. Um, so the first one is the figure of Mary, who didn't even, as it were, regard her body as her own, but was able to give birth to the Christ as a result. There's a reference to a heroic Roman consul called Frabisius, and he was remembered particularly as an exemplar because in the Repo Roman Republican period he refused all bribes and died in poverty as a result, um, you know, in the strange semi-corrupt system of the Roman um, leadership, you were supposed to sort of take bribes almost as payment for your service to the state. But of course that's very uneasy and unstable because it's open to endless exploitation. Anyway, sort of Fabricius was seen to have seen through this, um, didn't take bribes, dies in penury, um, but nonetheless by not clinging to the things of this world, um, you might say gave birth in his life the ideal of the Roman Republic, um, something which is very important to Dante in contrast to the politics of his own day. So Fabricius is the second after Mary I. And then third is Nicholas, Saint Nicholas. Um, one of the myths around Saint Nicholas is that he gives up from his own wealth in order to provide dowries for the daughters, the three daughters of a friend who doesn't have um, you know, quite substantial amounts that that would require. Um, so again, he is free, generous, able to give up um, what he otherwise own, seems to own in this world, realising that actually it's in the service of something greater, um, in this case, um, the lives of three um, women. And Dante asks the voice to speak more. Again, his kind of spiritual wisdom inside him has clocked that this voice has got something that's absolutely crucial for him in this moment. And the voice, too, recognises that. Um, he sees that Dante is a living soul. Um, but rather than grasping at that for himself, as if, you know, Dante might be able to offer prayers for him to alleviate his state now, um, he actually says, no, 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 I, I don't want um, to go that way. Um, he recognises that Dante's presence is itself a moment of grace, um, divine intervention that they've never seen before in this place, um, and so goes with that element and so offers something that is going to turn out to be um, full of grace for Dante himself. So they speak. Um, it's a, a synchronistic moment, I think, on Mount Purgatory, another one of these moments where it's not just kind of random events that sometimes seem to have good coincidence, um, you know, as if this is just Dante telling a story. Um, no, this I think is Dante reflecting on how in this state of mind, um, this spiritual world that he is travelling through, everything has meaning, nothing happens um, by chance, um, and in particular, whatever happens is a gift, it can be used by Dante to help and work with the transformation of his own soul, which I think is got a clear message for us, um, if this world is quite a purgatorial state too, if we have the right inner eyes, the right inner ears, everything can be an opportunity for us too to work on our own liberation, the own, our own expansion of sight, our own path to heaven. Now what happens, to return to the canto, um, is that the soul identifies himself, 
he says that he is Hugh Capet. He is a king of France back in the 10th century, so 300 years before Dante's own life. And he relates how his sons and heirs became increasingly corrupt kings of France. In particular, they were prepared to sacrifice their own families, their own virtue, um, to pursue their kingly avarice for conquest. That in particular reaches over time into Italy. And in fact, as we'll see, leads directly to the suffering of Dante's own life. This is the moment where the commentators at great length tease apart what Hugh Capet says to Dante in Purgatory and what is now known to have happened in history. But it's the emotional truths that really count. You know, this is Dante lamenting, mourning, not just his immediate past. Um, remember, he's, we've already thought a little bit about um, his erotic desires and how he must mourn those. Um, this is him mourning what now, as a psychotherapist, you might think of as his systemic past. Um, it's the generations before him that have passed life towards him, have created the conditions for his own life, um, have, as it were, um, even polluted the air, the atmosphere of the life that he must um, live. But in lamenting them, in mourning them, in seeing their emotional impact upon him, he's going to be able to become freer of that deep past. Um, you know, it's another really important part of this purgative process. Um, you know, speaking for us now more personally, um, you know, maybe it's not just about um, lamenting the mistakes that we've made in life and becoming more conscious of our darker desires and shadows, um, but also seeing how the influences that have led us to be born in the state that we find ourselves, you know, whether it be rich or poor, lucky or unlucky, um, lots of the things which are talked about around education, social status, all those things which are very important and preoccupying in the modern world, you know, there's a, in one way, these are things to fight for the improvement of, um, but in another way, for the individuals actually thrown into their life, there's a moment where you have to kind of accept what life has given you um, and to work through how it precipitates jealousy and anger, um, but nonetheless use it in order to move into the future and not stay gripped and preoccupied with the past. Just to give one example of how this actually works out, I mean, what's quite a long section of the canto, um, Dante says that um, one of the kings of France had poisoned Thomas Aquinas now in 1274. Now, we, we know that that didn't actually happen, um, but the myth of the poisoning of Thomas Aquinas carries one of these emotional inner truths. And so I think it's appropriate that it's rehearsed at this point, because the point of Hugh Capat's great history of the kings of France is not to give us a history, actually, but it's to voice Dante's lament. And so um, that kind of detail carries an emotional truth, which is really important for um, Dante to hear being sung on Mount Purgatory in order that he can 
feel its full effects upon him and find this space around it and so be freer to move forwards. It was Charles of Anjou who was said to have poisoned Thomas Aquinas and it's another Charles, Charles of Valois, who in 1301 is the king that precipitates the entry into Florence and in the bitterest moment of Hughes' song um, to this point describes how with one thrust the guts of Florence were burst open and it's on that day, All Saints Day 1301, that Dante himself is sent into exile and so loses his birthplace and city, his spiritual as well as his physical home and in telling this story he's having to really own the tragic truth of his earthly life um, in order to begin to change his relationship towards him, it. Um, Hugh pauses to apostrophize the avarice which has so corrupted his own line. You know, down through the centuries, this pollution um, has infected it. But he carries on and he comes to a part of the story which preoccupied Dante even more in a way, which is the story of Philip the Fair so-called, another king, um, and Pope Boniface VIII, who Dante so curses in other parts of the Divine Comedy. But here there's an interesting twist which points to a deeper insight, because the way that Hugh tells this bit of the tale, Philip is said to have been like Pontius Pilate, putting Christ to death. And so what Dante is driving at here is that although Boniface VIII was, you know, a nasty and corrupt pope, um, you know, not untypical um, of um, the church at that time, Dante is also realising that there's a kind of deeper um, lament here, which is that Christ, in and so far as Christ is manifest um, in the church and the papacy, um, too has been crucified again, crucified afresh. You know, that's how profound um, these worldly tortures and errors and battles and fights. That's how the extent of avarice, you know, it's sometimes said that avarice is actually the basic sin, not pride. Um, and in likening the effects of avarice to the crucifixion of Christ repeatedly through history, um, that's expressing something of the depth of that insight. It's also actually quite an interesting comment on the meaning of the passion of the crucifixion of Christ because it's suggesting that it's a kind of necessary lament for the sins of the world um, and it's through going on that emotional journey which the passion enables us to do that we become freer and so can move towards a new life. Um, it's a different kind of soteriology if you like you know, not one of sacrifice, um, as if God the Father demands something to be slain to satisfy his need for purity. Very, very different. Um, there's something very humane and human about the passion that's been suggested here. Um, it's for our sakes, for our process, our transformation, um, which is this emotional, spiritual, inner undertaking. And I think that's going to be picked up again in Paradise, but we'll leave that. There for now. Hugh then explains that 
whilst the souls rehearse exemplars by day, figures like uh, Mary, in order to encourage them to be able to absorb the light and the sunshine of the day and the divine presence. Um, at night, in the darkness, they recall those who had exemplified the vice of avarice. And um, he then runs quite quickly through a string of these dark shadows. Um, just to pick up on one, as a little taste of that, um, he remembers Midas, the mythical king, who wanted to be able to turn anything he touched into gold. And so, of course, whilst full of worldly splendour, can't even feed himself because everything he touches turns to gold, um, even as he tries to put food into his mouth. Um, and then Hugh explains to Dante a little bit about why he heard his voice as um, he approached um, and says that he says that um, they call out um, as the kind of well as their feelings um, lead them but I think this is um, to suggest as the spirit as grace leads them and so the implication is that Dante that as Dante approached Hugh, Hugh was actually moved seemingly within himself but again because of the grace and the synchronicity of these places and by a greater purpose to speak out which is why Dante heard him uh, felt um, the urgency for him in Hugh's voice as well as for Hugh and so there's a lovely sense that um, what's going on on this terrace um, day and night um, wove together in this moment of encounter between Dante and Hugh and so there's a deep generosity of the place too which we've been seeing in the way that the souls um, give and take to each other and then the encounter between Dante and Hugh is over um, much more quickly than it begun um, Dante says they moved on it's as if Dante knows that for now what he needed has been satisfied it wasn't with Adrian it has been now he's done this deep lament and as if to underscore that one of the most dramatic moments in the purgatory now takes place because the whole mountain shudders there's a massive earthquake Dante and Virgil are terrified not understanding what this is about Virgil says to Dante look don't worry whilst you stay near me we can be sure everything will be all right um, just in parentheses Virgil hasn't said anything in this canto but this is Virgil the faithful um, on his own journey towards paradise reassuring Dante in this moment I should say on his way to journey towards paradise as I'm increasingly feared is the case many commentators don't um, they cling to each other and then they hear um, uh, Gloria being sung it's the Gloria that the angels sang to the shepherds at the birth of Christ um, Dante says that they hear it sort of cascading up and down the mountain sometimes distinctly and more distantly as an echo um, it's a very you know tremendous moment um, but with that sense of fear um, that's both fright and also awe wondering quite what this is all about um, and by the end of the canto we don't know we're left hanging though there is a um, an analogy that's given Dante the poet says it was a bit like when um, Latona went to give birth to Apollo and Diana on the mountain of Delos and the mountain had shaken 
with earthquakes until it was needed to provide a safe place for these great gods to be born and then it became still um, by Jupiter's intervention. And so there's a sense that this shaking has got something to do with something new being born, um, you know, the sun and the moon, Diana and Apollo. Um, it means something tremendous, a bit like the encounter with Hugh. It's not just happenstance. Dante and Virgil have this experience, I think, in this moment, precisely because they're ready to have this experience in this moment, even a seemingly cosmic experience um, like an earthquake and the singing of the Gloria. But for now, they don't know. They return to their walk around the terrace, even as the souls around and about them return to their own lament. Um, and timidly, Dante says, they walked on, unclear quite where they had got to, what this all meant, though with this sense captured in the metaphor of the earthquake that it does indeed mean something quite tremendous.